0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to bring you ideas and resources so you can strengthen your professional development plan. Thanks for listening and for your encouragement. Glad to bring you these weekly conversations with national experts who are on the cutting edge of philanthropy. And in fact, I had a fantastic conversation this week with Melissa Brown, who indeed is a national expert. She brings 30 years of experience in the nonprofit sector and is considered one of the top philanthropy speakers in the country. I can certainly see why. She has worked with organizations across North America and brings both a researcher's eye and a teacher's touch to every topic we discussed. She's on the faculty of Indiana University's fundraising school, She's also consulting for Carter, a global philanthropy firm, and has literally served as an editor for the Giving USA report. Of course, Giving USA was a headline for this episode, and I feel certain you will better understand and be able to utilize this report going forward as a result of the conversation Melissa and I had. Uh, She not only helps you understand the data, but perhaps more importantly, how you can position your nonprofit to better utilize the donor preferences that are embedded in the research. Lots to check out in the show notes for this bonus episode. It's number 62. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find out all of the resources, the links, books, as well as more information on Melissa and the work she's doing at Carter through the Association of Philanthropic Council and at the Fundraising School at Indiana University. While you're on the website, don't forget to check out the resources that we might be able to help you, uh, both for your nonprofit organization or for your personal professional journey. We'd love to talk to you more about our coaching and training or things we can do to help you with your fundraising and strategy. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Melissa Brown. Melissa, thank you for joining me on the path.
1: It is such a pleasure, Patton. Thank you so much.
0: Well, uh, I'm excited for this conversation, Melissa. You've had a phenomenal career in all aspects of philanthropy, really. And of course, you're involved all across the country. So you're hearing things, you're studying things, you're researching things that I'm certain nonprofit leaders will benefit from. So thank you for this conversation. And I guess, as you might imagine, my first question is always how did you get into this nonprofit world?
1: Well, it was 30-some years ago, and so it was not a plan. Was, <laughs> um, although I suppose it was, in a way, now that I think about it. Um, I had studied city management at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Okay.
1: Um, my mother tells me I was born to run, um, and she meant run other organizations.
0: <laughs> right, and right. At,
1: the t- at the time, I didn't know there was such a thing as the nonprofit sector. I mean, it was everywhere, right? We went to church, right. we were girl scouts, right. boy scouts, all that stuff. It was everywhere. But we didn't really think of it as a sector. So um, I said, oh, I'll go into government because I want a life of service. And um, I, you know, went on that path, graduate school, all that stuff. And then I met this guy. And, (laughs) you know, this guy was going to, and he did get a career at a major university with tenure where he wouldn't move for 30 years. And I looked at people in government and I said, that doesn't work. Because people in city management move every three years and they're usually in small towns and yada yada. So I said, huh, what can I do where I can use the skills that I know I have and still have a life of service? And lo and behold, I thought of charities. So my very deliberately, and this is the planned part, very deliberately got a job as the person who entered gifts in the new database at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, DC. Brand new database, this is 1989.
0: This was the very beginning we're talking about now. Yeah. Okay, got it. I
1: mean, just starting to computerize, (laughs) which I knew something about, you know, all that stuff. And I said, I need a worm's eye view. I need to understand fundraising. And um, they were gracious enough to hire me, um, you know, even though I had a master's degree and so forth. Um, And um, I got to enter the gifts there, help plan events, help write proposals, help do annual fund, all of those core functions in a fundraising office. Um major gifts um nice. as well, supported major gifts to some extent.
0: You were I, overqualified, and, Melissa, in yeah, many respects. Well, but I mean
1: I, I learned all that stuff there. But it paid right off. Yeah. But it paid off. Because yeah. I really got to, I saw the development operation from it was a small team and they let me have a hand in everything. Um Excellent. and then I trained my successor and uh, then went on to three other jobs in, in fundraising. Um and at one of those jobs I was saying, Oh, this is at the uh, at that time I was at Indiana. University, and I said, "Gosh, you know, I I really like the writing part. I like the proposal part. But I'm such an introvert. I don't like the major gift stuff."
0: Interesting, right?
1: You know, I just you're not feel... alone
0: in that feeling, right? In <laughs> exactly. Our field. Yeah. So what
1: could I do that would add value? That would can be consistent with my commitment to service? That would that would not keep propelling me toward major gift work because that's the fundraising path, right? You start an annual fund, you go to proposals, you go to major gifts, you go to plan giving. I wasn't going to do that. right? And that's when the, uh, the opportunity came to do the research piece. Um, and because I'd been in five different types of organizations at several different levels, uh, worm's eye view all the way up to 30,000 feet where I was assisting the director of development. Um, I, and I had some other skills, you know, with that master's degree thing, those other skills played into the research part. And so that's how I slid over into the research piece in 2000.
0: And teaching too, right? Melissa, you've done Uh, a fair amount of teaching for sure. Yes. Also on the research side? Both, actually. um,
1: Yeah, uh, the fundraising school is affiliated with the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. It's actually the the seed from which the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy sprouted. Um, The fundraising school was founded in 74, but it moved to IU in 87. Um, the founder, Mr. Rosso, um, wanted it to live beyond himself and his wife. And so he gave it essentially to IU. Um, and that is the kernel that from which the IU Lilly family school of philanthropy grew, um, uh, from that time. So they were already paired, you know, when I was doing the research and the fundraising, I was doing research and fundraising for the school of philanthropy. Um, and the fundraising school said, you know, even though you're an introvert, you can act well <laughs> enough to be a, to be a faculty teacher. You can teach, it. You yeah, can teach it. Would you yes. like to teach? And so I said sure. And uh, so I've been teaching for them since ninety-eight. Um, yeah, online and in person, uh, for both for, for the fundraising school. I actually taught at the university level in a couple graduate school classes. Um, and uh, of course I do my own webinar sessions and now podcasts with you uh, uh, when asked, when that's... given an opportunity.
0: It's fantastic. And again, I'm eager to unpack several (laughs) of your layers of expertise and and obviously how this applies to nonprofit leaders, because I know you have suggestions around that in particular, how leaders should utilize research and things like that. But let me ask, you: I've been asking all of our guests of late, uh, how are you operating in this virtual environment? Have you found any tips or tricks that have helped you stay organized in this kind of unusual circumstance?
1: Well, uh, um, yes and no. In that, I, I have done a lot of work virtually since I formed my own company in, in 2011. Right. Um, in part because I had a national client base and I was based in Indiana, so I, it's you know data work you don't have to be on site. So the telephone uh, was great, and we did a lot of by telephone. I happen to really like Zoom, um, and so sliding into that uh, was was cool. The thing for everybody I,
0: else, learns Zoom too. You already had Zoom, right?
1: Well, <laughs> you yes. already good at it. <laughs> i don't know about good at it but i i used it um but the thing that i have the biggest challenge with and you and i experienced this uh, just today is uh, time zones you know i work around the world actually i have clients in canada panama south korea wow. and um i use this these apps for setting calendar uh, appointments uh, i use one called calendly and i put everything on my google calendar which is my you know my dashboard for everything that i, I have to do and then if i I happen to travel, it, it, things get messed up. So I have to master that, how to get my computer to be on the same time zone I am. I think it's a, a little function. I just have to get in there, <laughs> um, but to keep myself on track, I, I track everything in Google Calendar, all my deadlines, all my projects, um, and it's free, you know, and uh, good point. Um, And I can keep track of everything. I also use the notebook uh, to record conversations and then I type up notes. Um, be, Because if I type the notes, then I can search in my computer to find the notes of that particular conversation. If I just leave it in the notebook, uh, you know, I have to flip through pages and I can't always interpret what I wrote. So um, Uh I really really try to keep typed notes as soon as I'm done. Um, Makes
0: total sense. And as, as an expert researcher, I'm not surprised that you have mastered some of those <laughs> techniques uh, as the rest of us continue to f- try to find that piece of paper on our desk, right? That is right, lost. the
1: back of the envelope that has <laughs> the key, key information you need, yeah.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, again, Melissa, I'm excited to get into several of the uh, kind of prominent research projects you're involved in. And as the headline of this episode suggests, Giving USA is... Uh, prominent among all of those studying philanthropy in this country. And um, I wanted to talk about that. You know, what are, what are some of the headlines from Giving USA this year? And of course, in, in a year of such uncertainty, I'm curious how you would describe some of the findings. And frankly, should we rely on them, given the uncertainty around us? Uh,
1: yes, and yes. So um, giving I edited Giving USA for 10 years. And then um, I, when I formed my own Company, I started being a commentator about Giving USA. So, for your audience, I'd like it to be clear I'm not editing or involved in the production of Giving USA at all.
0: Gotcha. I'm now
1: a consumer, just like uh, most of your listeners will be. Um, so, what I look for, um, you know, there's the headline number How much did philanthropy grow? That make, that's what often makes the headlines. Once in a while it comes down, but not very often. Um, but I'm looking at trends, and I really, really care about trends that help me understand our current period. So, the Giving USA that came out in June of this year, uh, you know, announced nearly 450 billion in charitable giving. That's yep. good. You
0: know? Yep. Yep.
1: And it was a slight increase, uh, you know, in, in current dollars. That's great. And it was still uh, almost 70 percent from living individuals. That's consistent oh, since I before I was born. Um, okay. I have gray hair, so it's been a long time. Uh, that <laughs> right. it's, uh, individuals have been the major source of giving, but I'm really interested uh, for this particular year in what Giving USA historically tells us about giving in times of recession, in times of uh, I'll just call it a natural disaster. It's really the the um,
0: um, this pandemic, pandemic world. Yeah, like, right. i was
1: thinking plague, but <laughs> the <Yeah>. pandemic. <laughs> it's
0: close, right? Yeah. All
1: <laughs> right. Um, what it tells us about giving in times of natural disaster, what it tells us about giving in times of recession, and what it tells us in times of uh, economic unemployment. Um, and uh, I'll try not to take the whole podcast about this, but there are <laughs> some key findings. Good, good, um, please. And they're not necessarily published in GivingUSA 2020, but givingusa.org is releasing subsequent studies um, that their team has uh, done, has uh, shared about about those topics. So one finding is that giving uh, doesn't usually go down during a recession. Um, it might grow very slowly, uh, but it doesn't usually go go absolutely down in, in what we call real dollars, adjusted for inflation. Yep. Now, um, the exception is of course the recession from 2008 and 2009, and then get, we did see giving decline that year. That was so such a bad deep uh, recession where where we had. Uh, Stock market down, assets down, housing market upside down, unemployment up—all those, all those bad things. This time, we have unemployment up, but the stock market is also up. Right. And which is weird.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It
1: is. It is completely counterintuitive, and I don't. You know, who knows how long it will last? But um, when the stock market is up, giving people give appreciated stock. It's, right. it's still one of the tax um, benefited ways to make a charitable gift. So um, in 2020, many people have started giving more actually um, in response to the COVID crisis, not only directly for healthcare, but also for food banks, uh, human services, uh, helping people with um, tutoring their kids at home when the uh, home-based education, all those things are inspiring additional grant making. And then of course we have the social equity, racial justice issues coming up as well that are also inspiring additional giving. this year, I mean, all bets are off about which direction. There are counter pressures. One pressure is the recession that, you know, with unemployment so high there for a while, um, the, that could pull giving down. But we also have the, the pull pressures of the, the needs being up so high. Um, and that's the disaster giving piece. We see giving go up and by billions um, in times of disaster. We saw almost 2 billion after the um, crises of 2001. We saw um, about 5 billion after the Hurricane Katrina and the Indian Ocean tsunami. And there was another hurricane in the United States that year. So 98, Hurricane Mitch in in, the Caribbean, we seek giving people respond and dig very deeply in times of crisis. So those two are operating together. Um, And part of the challenge for charities is to be able to explain uh, to their constituents, uh, yes, we understand the pain that you're feeling. It is a tough time. Here's how we are helping people in our sphere, whatever your sphere is. Here's yep. how you can help those people too. And make a really clear case for whatever you're doing and how it's helping people through this tough time, whether it's That's music, so education, well or, yep. or, you
0: know, anything. Cause it's, it is a natural disaster. And so you're saying is, that that yep. is a similar design and, and perhaps we should use that as we make our case.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's, if you can, you know, clearly not every organization uh, will right. find that a good fit, but uh, many organizations are in some way or another helping the people through this time. And to you, tell that story and invite people to, to partner with you to reach that, those goals that you have. The other way I wanted to say for trans was every organization is in a subsector. So there's health, human services, education, environment, all of those. And uh, the national trend for overall giving is not necessarily reflected in each subsector. So um, for your own organization, those of you who are listening, uh, look, take Giving USA's data for the last 10 years, for example, and look at the rates of change for your subsector. Their are data tables in the back of the book. So if you buy the book, That's good point. get the data tables and then see what your subsector, what your organization's doing. If you are way off from the national trends, ask yourself why. Are you telling your message well are you reaching the right people are you making it easy to give are you asking enough individuals or are you focused on corporations and foundations try to assess why you are not on that national trend for your subsector um and uh, i think that can be helpful
0: great advice and as you point out that i guess some of the subsectors arts and culture for example perhaps are not seeing the I don't want to say benefit, but the the case it's, for support is perhaps more difficult, right? It's
1: a harder case for support right now. Although many, of course, are doing tremendous uh, outreach. They're doing things on Zoom. They're doing really innovative, uh, creative kinds of fundraising, virtual events, providing fun at home.
0: Yeah, good uh, point. During
1: this time, we need so, that.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, the uh, some organizations are able to uh, to do that now. Not every, but uh, you know. Uh, a building that hosts ballet might have a harder time, a center for the performing arts in a community is going to have a harder time than the ballet company itself or than the theater or the opera company itself.
0: Um, right. And of course, I'm struck, Melissa, by the practical advice you're giving too about just gifts, giving uh, gifts of stock. And is our nonprofit clear in the fact that we do indeed accept gifts of stock? Because clearly you're illustrating that's where a lot of people are giving particularly that's high net worth that's where people
1: have resources to give um gifts of stock uh, also um, required minimum distributions people who are over 70 and a half uh, can give from their retirement funds with no without taking the in, the money as income so it's a, re, a rmd is the is the lingo are right, you prepared right. to accept those um, do you put it on your re- reply form that you can help people transfer assets from their donor-advised fund, from their retirement account, or from their stock account? Can you do that? Can you partner with a community foundation to help you do that Uh, if you don't, if you're a smaller organization and don't have those skills in-house?
0: It's a great point. And that's, I appreciate you lifting that up because I just think there are practical applications. And you've also noted, of course, you know, reading through the report, I guess often we stop at the headlines, don't we, of, you know, the $450 billion. But your advice, obviously, is to look into our subsectors with a little more scrutiny to understand what it means for us.
1: I, I think so. I think that's where the real value lies. And uh, each subsector has its own chapter. And the, the people at it's at, written at IU, uh, Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, they have uh, some of their uh, scholars do research about what's happening in that subsector. So you can also be pointed to other reports that might have come out. So I, the one I remember is the theater communications group. Um, each year, they do a survey of private nonprofit theaters, and they ask not only about how much money did you raise, but they ask well, how much is from board members or how much is from trustees, and they track that over time as well.
0: And um, that gives you a benchmark as an organization if you're in that sector to see how you kind of exactly. compare. Any
1: sector might find right. that useful um, to, to have a benchmark, even if it's from a different sector. And Giving USA tries to compile all of those studies. That's why they call it the yearbook of philanthropy. Um, they try to pull in uh, other research that's come out during the course of the year and summarize it essentially or pre- present some of the key data points uh, in the text as well as those, those headline numbers.
0: Yeah, it's a goldmine, isn't it? And you don't just have to be a research uh, enthusiast to, to appreciate <laughs> this. And, and I guess that's the question I was going to ask you because if, if I'm an, uh, you know, sometimes overworked, overwhelmed executive director of a nonprofit, uh, I still need to understand some of these trends and issues, don't I? And, and I guess I, I know you'd be a good champion for using research to help you educate your constituents and your donors.
1: Absolutely, and if, I mean, they don't sell the the chapters by themselves, but the, the whole book, if you just read the, the chapter about the type of work your organization is doing, I think you will find it immensely valuable um, because it will have some of those summary uh, key points. Um, they also sometimes provide some context about other major, major news stories that are affecting a subsector and it could be no, good to know, to know what's, uh, you know, wildfires in the West, for example, will be a big thing for the environmental chapter this coming year. Good point. Um, well, it,
0: it strikes me too, and I, and I know it's fundamental to you as someone who studied this literally for decades, but the, the overall giving from individuals and families, would you say 70% or so from yeah, the latest? That's
1: from, right? the live, that's from living people. So now of course, good point. Um, the everybody who makes a bequest made it when they were alive. And <laughs> right. bequests, have, right? <laughs> uh, bequests have been increasing as a share of the total over the past five years. Um, my guess is we are starting to see the transfer of wealth occur that was predicted back in 98. Um, those scholars, um, Paul Shervish and John Havens, estimated that it would start in the mid-2000s. And, um, you know, the, with the recession and things, here we are at, at 2018, 2019, we've started to see it pick up. So I think bequest giving is um, is growing uh, as a part of the total. In part because organizations are asking, and we're also seeing that family foundation grant making is uh, increasing part of the total. So that didn't even used to exist, really. I mean, the Kresge Foundation and the Ford Foundation, yeah, they were run by families at first, but then they became endowed. Uh, perpetual foundations run by boards of trustees. So in 2000, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, I think it was around 19.9 billion. uh, They stuck in their family foundation. Gordon and Betty Moore put 5 billion in their family foundation. Those donors are still alive. Wow. And they're calling the shots about where their family foundation makes grants now. Well, about half of the total foundation grant making is actually controlled by living members, living donors who created the foundation as a giving vehicle so we're not talking about going to program officers and writing proposals and negotiating you know over and over about the nitty-gritty of of the project sometimes we're talking about knowing somebody who knows somebody who the family member says yeah this great thing is happening in this town and i think it is so terrific i want our foundation to support it and they call you up and they say we want a proposal
0: that's how it works right
1: and it it is just like major donors
0: i was just going to say and so the takeaway (laughs) for a, a nonprofit leader is well i I think sometimes there there's we get enamored with the corporate philanthropy because there is indeed some corporate philanthropy but melissa that is going down is it not as the individual family goes up yeah it's
1: about five percent of the total corporate philanthropy is um and of course some of that is actually family philanthropy too because the company is closely held and the families
0: corporation
1: as a giving vehicle um but the actual um uh, family philanthropy is being driven now by those large family foundations. Um, the rest of us, uh, I can't compete with Bill and Melinda Gates. I mean, they put $19.9 billion into a foundation on one day, right? And I might put $19.90 into a charity on any given day. So um, that's where a lot of the individual uh, giving is originating now. And knowing who, who it is in your community, who's on the board of a family foundation or a family foundation that started in your town where the uh, heirs of the family have moved away. How do you reestablish links with those heirs? Um, you know, get those 990s, 9, uh, the 990PFs, private foundations, and look at the board membership and see if you have connections there, because that's, that's how they're going to learn about your work, is through the, those board members. You don't ask the board member, can you give me a grant? Right. You ask the board member, hey, I, we have a really interesting project. I'd like to send it to somebody. Who should I
0: contact? Help me at least get in the door, right, right. for that discussion. right? right. Right. What about the, the uh, what appears to be an increase in donor advised funds or giving through community foundations or other vehicles like that? Mm-hmm. Does the report reflect that? And if so, how? <laughs>
1: um, there's a different report, the donor advised fund report that comes out usually in November. This coming year, I think it'll be in 2021 because of the delay in the filing okay. requirements, right? Right, but, right. Um, but uh, it actually reports very carefully about donor advised funds. It's put out by National Philanthropic Trust. Uh, and you, there, you're there. It's not just an appearance of an increase. In, uh, there's an actual, bona fide increase in the number of funds and in the assets in donor advised funds. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, and one of those community foundations, like you're talking about, um, they're very good at asking for those funds. It's, right. Their stocks and trade has been for a century. Um, but we also have the um, the funds that are run by what are now called national charities. So National Christian Foundation. Started running a bunch of donor advised funds. Yep. Um, that's fine. That's one of the great ways to give, and and people love them because they can, they can like sell the company. If I sold my company, if I had any money, you know, if anybody wanted to buy my little company, <laughs> right. and I, and I made a whole bunch of money on it, it would be a good idea to use to give a bunch of money to charity. But I might not know exactly where I want to give my money right now. Indeed. Um, I do happen to know, but I might not, you know, I might be a donor who does <laughs> Hypothetically,
0: <not>. right, exactly. <laughs> right.
1: Hypothetically. Mm. Um, and so I could put it in a donor advised fund. I could then get my kids involved and say, hey, girls, I have all daughters. How, how should we give this money away? What do you think? And then uh, it becomes a way to educate the next generation about philanthropy. That's one reason people use donor advised funds. Indeed. Another one is because they have what's called the wealth event. And, you know, they're making up their mind. Um, another one is anonymity. Um, there are donor advised funds that have been created by people who sign the giving pledge and that's because those people do not want to be hassled at cocktail parties, uh, asked right. for gifts, right. uh, all of which are, are terrific reasons. Um, there are also donor advised funds now that are being created as a form of workplace philanthropy. There's a couple of them where the company invites the donor advised fund sponsor essentially into the company and says, we want to make it easy for our employees to give. We'd like you to, you know, create this interface for our employees. They can then work, select the charities they'd like to support uh, from your list, donor advised fund sponsor, and uh, make a payroll deduction through us, through their paycheck. And then you, donor advised fund sponsor, manage the financial end of that.
0: Um, Interesting. That's increasing, you're saying. That
1: is increasing and considerably. We saw an enormous growth in the number of funds. Now those funds tend to be small. Which is fine, but there's a huge number of the funds that are um, of that type. Um, that it's, it's an innovative approach to uh, making giving easy, making it affordable, affordable, and any size company can use it. Um, you know, I don't know how, what the fee structure is, but it, it's a pretty clever way to use the concept of a donor advised fund to inspire more people to give.
0: Yes, so that the mission of many organizations certainly benefit from that philanthropy, but I guess as a nonprofit leader and fundraiser in particular, how does that change our dynamic? How do we get over the wall? So to speak that sometimes those funds create,
1: we don't, we work with the donors, the people who are initiating those gifts are the same as the people who would be initiating a a gift by giving through a credit card or in the old days, finding a stamp and a pen and an envelope and a checkbook. (laughs) Right. Um, and we are just trying to make it easier by making it a single transaction. So you can use, um, put something on your website called DAF widget, W I D G E T. Um, it's actually a thing. It's free and you can put it on your website saying, yes, if you'd like to make a gift through a donor advised fund, use the DAF widget, click the donor clicks on it. It goes, it gives them a list of all the fund sponsors. They can click on their fund sponsor, log in and make a gift. Um, Just, just make it easy um, put on your reply devices. We can help you make a gift from a donor advised fund. You know, either call us or let us know that that's what you want to do. Uh, some donor advised funds make it difficult, um, to track back who the uh, the donor is, you know, right. anonymity is a part of it.
0: Yeah. They're so, trying to. Right.
1: Right. So, um, some charities are asking their donors, uh, yes, I'm going to make a gift from, I'll just use chop Charles Schwab. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm gonna make a gift from Charles Schwab of X amount. Um, and so that when that check comes in from Charles Schwab, the uh, charity has an ability to call that donor, say, hey, we got a check. I just wanna make sure this is yours. Make sure you get credit for it. Wanna thank you for your gift. Um, so that, Cause otherwise it's too anonymous and the charity won't know who, who initiated the gift. So I put that on response devices. Same with required minimum distributions.
0: Good point. If you
1: want to make a, uh, if you're seventy and a half and above, and you want to distribute from your retirement funds tax free, just let the charity know that you're doing that, because otherwise they might not know that that check that comes from whatever retirement uh, fund source you have, that that check would be a gift from you.
0: But the point is, we just need to make sure that our donors know we're open for this kind of business. That's at yes. least three you've added. And I don't think, frankly, a lot of nonprofits make clear that we can mm-hmm. help you with a legacy mm-hmm. gift with right. the required minimum distribution with the gift of stock. And as you suggest, the donor advised fund.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna add a new one. This study hasn't come out yet. We're, we're trying to roll it out here in the first week of October. But um, I did a project with a company called Newport One. And uh, we found that PayPal more donors say that they want paypal
0: than say they want to
1: give by credit card interesting um, and frankly i love it i love giving by paypal it's super easy i just log into paypal usually the my demographic information copies right over um, and super simple for me as a donor and um it's uh, you know i get a nice little summary i get a thank you from the charity everything's you know i've got all the things i need um, and just make it simple. If you have a way to let people give by PayPal on your website or, I mean, it's a little more complicated on the response device, but, you know, tell right. people they can go to your website and give by PayPal. People like that security. Um, that's an increasing aspect of online giving now that uh, people want to know that their information will be protected. And so far PayPal has been really good at that.
0: And that's a trend we need to uh, mm-hmm. accept, don't we? Mm-hmm. And yes. Yes. Uh, well, fantastic practical applications of all this. I guess uh, finishing up the Giving USA report. Melissa, anything else that you think someone that is trying to understand it needs to know uh, in addition to all that you've shared so far?
1: Top line changes, trends for your subsector, overall trends, dig around for information about um, disaster giving and, and recession giving. Um, understand what other reports are out there in your particular subsector. No, yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty comprehensive.
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> well done. And, and I know you could have done that for several hours more. I know. Uh, yeah, given probably. the depth you, uh, So I'm grateful as are, as are our listeners that you were able to summarize it. And obviously I'm going to encourage all our listeners to, you know, do your homework, uh, get to know this report and uh, make it part. And I would think if I'm an executive director, maybe a session with my board, and or mm, yes, staff, help, right? Helping to help the them board understand.
1: understand. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so many people come on the board and they're not very experienced in, in philanthropy. And they say, well, go talk to whoever the biggest employer in town is. They'll give exactly. us that. uh No. Um, it's really the individuals, the people on your list already. Um, sometimes you need ways to help build your list. That's a different session, Pat, and we can do that later. But. Yeah, exactly. we we'll have to <laughs> add that
0: to part
1: two, right? <laughs> um, so educate your board members um, that... Uh, that it's that you have to invest in individual fundraising and it takes time. There's absolutely no doubt about it. It takes time. It takes people power because people give to people. It's just that simple.
0: It's well put. Wonderful nuggets of wisdom coming out of that uh, discussion. Melissa, thank you. And you're also involved, I know in a big research study for the association of philanthropic council. Tell us about that and maybe some (laughs) of the things that you are learning from it so far.
1: Sure, sure. This is actually still open um, well, no, I, it, it, it's going to close soon. So I guess I shouldn't do that, but I was going to ask everybody to take it. Right. But right
0: by the time they hear this, maybe right. it may not be right.
1: <laughs> so, um, because 2020 is such an unusual year and, um, you know, things that were happening from March to April are not anywhere like the things that are happening June to August, uh, you know, with reopenings around different parts of the country and so forth. Um, APC, which is the association of philanthropic council, uh, got together and uh, we decided to host our own survey. So there's about 35 um, firms in this group, APC, and we're all fundraising consultants one way or another. And uh, we put together a survey and we're, we've sent it out to our clients. So as of today, so it's only been out you know, a week or so, I can tell you that of the people who've responded, the organizations that have responded, 50% say they're on track or better for meeting their 2020 fundraising goals. Interesting. Based on what I'd heard about 2020, and you know what I saw from Blackbaud that came out about the second quarter, and uh, you know the gloom and doom about the economy and, right, and unemployment, right. I was astounded that 20 percent—I mean that 50 percent of organizations are on track to meet their fundraising goals. Now I want to put this in a little context. That does mean 50 percent are not on track. Yeah,
0: right? <laughs> um,
1: but Very in a true. normal year, in a normal year, and this goes back to uh, another study that's no longer running. But AFP started this in 2006, um, and then it was continued for, for more than 10 years. Uh, the nonprofit research collaborative found that in any one year, 25% are not on track to meet their fundraising goals. You um, know, all, all different reasons. People leave, you know, some horrible thing happens in their community, and all the effort goes to that horrible thing, right. uh, whatever it was, the um, 25% in a typical year do not. Uh, meet their fundraising goals. And now we have 50%. So 50% sounds horrible and it's a hundred percent increase from the normal 25%, but it's not 75% are not on track. It's not 99% are not on track. Right. Right, Exactly. Right. Um, So it's a, it's a bad news, good news kind of thing. The good news is it's not as bad as we thought. Um, And uh, so the, the people are on track to, to meet their goals. Now, again, in a, a contrast to 2008, Um, We asked this nonprofit research collaborative. Again, it's no longer running, but um, there are data from 2008. Uh, That group asked, what fundraising mechanisms are you using? Are you using online, direct mail, major gifts, yada, yada, uh, requesting uh, gifts from board members and so forth? And which ones are succeeding? Where are you raising more than you did last year at this time? So in 2008, the uh, fundraising mechanisms that were working to help nonprofits raise more money to the extent that there were, were board gifts and major gifts. So really relying on the deep pockets, the super committed people at the core of the constituency that were helping the nonprofit get through that really tough year of 2008. So now we're asking the same question. We modeled the questions on what the Nonprofit Research Collaborative was doing so we could have this comparative. In this particular survey, it's virtual events and email. It's not board giving. It is not major gifts, although they're, they are successful. The ones that are driving success right now are virtual events and email. So it's not concentrating the giving at the highest end of, at the highest part of the giving pyramid, the richest people who are closest to the organization. Yeah, that's
0: what I think many would assume.
1: Exactly. It's blowing wide open the notion of we need support from everyone. Every person who can make any type of contribution to our organization can make a difference with the gifts this year. So at the virtual events, a lot of, there's a lot of examples of really fun, creative things that people have done. I don't need to go into that. Sure, we'll, sure. There's a lot of stuff out there about that. Um, but also email appeals and email appeals are really successful when they tell one person's story, when they have a catchy subject line and when they make it super easy to give. So, you know, tell a little bit of the story, Give now. Tell a little bit more of the story. Give now. Can't tell a little bit more of the story. Give now. Don't make the link only at the bottom, um, or push people to a website and then and then tell more of the story and then the give now uh, button is there. But to me, it's like it's re-democratizing fundraising. Is re-democratizing giving, because we hear so much about the concentrated giving from the people at the very top of the pyramid. And,
0: indeed, we do. Yep. Some
1: organizations weren't even going to do annual funds anymore. They were only going to do major gifts. I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's a way to kill your program. In 10 years, you won't have anybody left. Um, but anyway, so now with the virtual events and the email appeals, a $5 gift makes a difference. You know, a gift that an yes, ordinary yes, person. Yes. You know, my, my nephew who just got a new job, you know, as a paralegal, he could make a gift and make a difference where he is in California. So it's uh, it's a flip to me from the concentrated core constituency to democratizing fundraising uh, democratizing the message getting more people involved which is fabulous because which that's how for the our sector pipeline for the right absolutely yeah, exactly. our sector needs those new donors and the people who get excited about the work who want to volunteer who can who can do in kind gifts who can give money uh, who can promote the messages uh, through facebook or linkedin or instagram or TikTok or whatever's next. Yeah,
0: um, exactly.
1: And, <laughs> um, what, what,
0: and sorry ahead. to interrupt you, Melissa. I was going to ask you, did you, you're encouraged by the trend or, because I was going to say, but is this just a bump, kind of the disaster relief yeah, kind of bump know. to philanthropy? I don't know yet. Okay. I don't
1: know yet. We know yeah. that a lot of people got involved in disaster relief philanthropy um, in 2001 and also in 2005. You know, I don't. Know people were passing their fire uh, fighters boots, in 2001 for the, for the, 9-11 rescue work, right. recovery work and all that. So there was a lot, there were a lot of people who were giving for that. Absolutely. Um, and, um, th- that might be what we're seeing, but based on other work that I'm seeing, people want to help. They just, it just needs to be easy. Um, that Newport one that study that I, I talked about with the PayPal, um, it, it we've have six different donor types and people want it to be easy. Um, that they wanna know how their their gift will make a difference and they want an easy way to give. And the groups that seem to be doing that with the email and with the virtual events are ones that are reporting success.
0: That's great and a good takeaway. Hey, was there any sector distinction, Melissa, I, in that study? You know, we're,
1: we're not at a point where we have enough uh, respondents in any sure. one sector to be able okay. to make any claims in that direction. Uh, but but would, generally
0: would, speaking, yeah. Generally speaking, yeah. And again, the takeaway, I, I love that. Again, if I'm a leader, I need to almost self-assess does my organization make it clear through what you're suggesting is literally a story of almost mm-hmm. an individual we serve. Yeah.
1: Right? Or a composite the, the more individual. More personalized. Sure. Right. You know, you could make, you could, I mean, you have to keep the details accurate, but you don't have to have the right person's name.
0: Got it. Got it. So
1: that it's a, uh, uh, you're not violating any uh, con- concerns about privacy or anything. It could be a family. It could be one, you know, family that's coping at this time and some kids, but um Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, 4,000 people in our community need your help right now. Oh, my gift won't make any difference.
0: Exactly right. You personalize it in a way that makes it attractive. Mm -hmm. Um, That's fantastic. Is this a study that you've done before and or will do again, APC, that is?
1: Uh, We'd love to do it again in January and see if things are remaining the same or changing. Right. Um, It was based on work done by Missy Gale and Associates, M. Gale and Associates in uh, Fort Worth. They're one of our members and they did some work in June for the, so the first part of the uh, COVID crisis and uh, we built on their research and then also the nonprofit research collaborative for that 10 year history uh, to try to get a good handle on what the pulse that's happening as of September. And then we're going to try to do it again in January.
0: That's fantastic. I'm sure you can give me information for the show notes if people want to learn more and or participate in future studies, because you want as many nonprofits as possible, obviously. You participate, don't you?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Is there anything else in terms of a takeaway there that you would suggest we need to know about APC's study?
1: Um, We, well, of course we are all consultants. (laughs) So I will say that, you know, but don't go it alone, ask for help. There are consultants in your town. There are consultants who are part of our network. There are consultants who are part of other networks. And for an hour, you can have somebody to bounce ideas around with. Um, that will be well worth the investment of whatever that consultant charges for an hour.
0: Great point. And I will happily link that because they're indeed resources. And of course, I know one, Joanne Beam right here in Charlotte. Sure. Where is she's one of our members. Yeah, Indeed. Yeah. So she has been a guest on the podcast and I'm happy to lift up her and Melissa, the work you and the whole APC network is doing. Yeah, um, thanks. You know, this, this generally speaks to what perhaps some, not, some executive directors or leaders <laughs> might say, gosh, research, I just don't like research. I, you know, why do I need that? Um, but it seems to me you have brought it to life. And I guess I want to hear from you other advice you would offer. If I'm an executive director, how can I better utilize research to, to you know, achieve my mission?
1: Um, well, part of it is don't, get, don't, get, don't go down every rabbit trail that looks interesting because research builds on prior knowledge so um you might see one study and say whoa this is it this is going to be the silver bullet no i'm sorry it's one unlikely study. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. so um it it would be super helpful if you can to connect with whether it's a nonprofit a resource center in your community a consultant in your community who watches these things uh the community foundation they probably have a staff member who watches these things uh there sometimes there are groups Within like our, uh, in Indiana, when I lived there at the United Way would have an executive director's group and they would get together and share the things that they'd heard and uh, the research studies that they'd read. Um, I've heard of groups forming their own little reading groups. um, So executive directors reading circle, and there'd be a a very short summary and they'd talk about how they would apply that information. Um, All of those can be helpful. If the ED is herself or himself um, trying to uh, amass it all, it'd be too much time. Um, there has to be ways to um, access the information more quickly, whether you have an intern do some of the work or or connect through some other existing structure. You um, don't
0: have to obviously have the in-house research capabilities no. to utilize good research in your community.
1: No. Abs- uh, the first place to start would be for uh, whether it's called the Center for Nonprofits or Nonprofit Resource Center. There's lots of different names for them, um, but many communities have them, um, often in a united way or a community foundation that exists to help nonprofits with things like this. And they also do board training and fundraising training and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, Some are now doing social equity, racial justice training. Um, And um, that can be, I would be that and the United Way would be the two places I would start if you don't have anything already going that you know about.
0: Well, as a a, a esteemed faculty member that you have been for uh, a long while, (laughs) is there training you would suggest if, if I'm on the nonprofit leadership path that would help me in terms of the basics of research, or is that still a specialty that perhaps an executive director doesn't need to necessarily sure get into? There.
1: I'm sure it's there and I don't have time to develop it. So there are programs that, um, you know, many, there are 310 campuses that offer some kind of training in nonprofit management around the country. Um, and, uh, some of those will do. You know, you can do an on one online course. I, I'm going to recommend a couple books, if I may. Oh, um,
0: I love that, and you know that's are, on my list for you anyway. <laughs> yeah, right,
1: I do. These are not specifically research focus. Okay. But I for that 30,000 foot view of how to run an organization, I found these two invaluable, and one is the Logic Model Handbook. I think they call it. Um, it's uh, by Lisa Knowles and her co-author, whose name I. Uh, need to remember. Um, we can find it, yeah. Yeah, I have it um, at the notes that I made after you sent me. Uh, logic model guidebook: Better strategies for great, great results. Lisa Knowlton, I had her name wrong. K N O W L T O N, and Cynthia Phillips. And I use logic models for everything: program design, fundraising planning, evaluation design.
0: Indeed, executive directors need. Yeah, they the need program. all that, don't they?
1: Yes, it is. It's a it's a way to think about why are we here? What are what can we use to apply to this issue, challenge, opportunity, whatever you want to think about, it, and how will we know that we succeed?
0: Love um, that. Love it.
1: It is a super, and I think it's fabulous uh, for anybody. And the other one is another thirty thousand foot view uh, of not the nonprofit sector, but it's really more focused on how organizations operate overall. It's called right. Engine of Impact. Engine of Impact, and it's by a guy named Bill William, Meehan, M-E-E-H-A-N, and uh, his co-author, Kim Jonker, J-O-N-K-E-R. And I'll send you this so you can post
0: it. uh, Yeah, absolutely.
1: And he has, uh, they've they've compiled research. I will say that I did help them with some of this research about what do very successful, larger uh, nonprofits that are working at scale. I mean, this is, this is no longer the nonprofit on somebody's kitchen table.
0: Exactly. This
1: is the large nonprofit that's having a tremendous impact around the world. Uh, what do they do that works? And um, it does include fundraising. It includes planning. It includes evaluation. And it has really good examples and references uh, to all of those. So um, I, I do recommend that as well um so it's it's not, neither are about managing nonprofits but both are yeah, what i i would relative. consider frameworks frameworks for thinking about how to manage
0: nonprofits. I think that's fantastic, Uh, and you anticipated my question, uh, usually as a parting gift from each guest, and you've (laughs) beat me to the punch with some wonderful, if I were building a curriculum, so to speak, on my journey to be an executive director, those would be two great books to read. As you said, Mm -hmm. uh, they they just would provide relevance to a lot of the management and strategic thinking I'm gonna have to do in nonprofit leadership.
1: And that that it's less about, you know, how do you do fund accounting or, um, you know, HR and both of which are useful skills, but you hire people for those skills.
0: Indeed. Um,
1: And, um, I hope you're in a big enough organization to hire or find a board member who can help you with those. Right. Um, and, and much more, why are we here and how will we know we made a difference? Those are the, if you can't answer those questions, you do not have a successful case for support.
0: Could not agree more. And, uh, Melissa, this has been a goldmine of resources in terms of both studies, uh, the the promise of research in general, how I can incorporate it. I guess other advice as you work with nonprofit leaders, I know all over the country, all over the world now, (laughs) anything else you would add to this great list of resources?
1: Well, this is one actually from my friend, Abby Von Schlegel, um, also a member of APC, the Association of Philanthropic Council. And she says, plan for alternative scenarios in this climate uh, we just don't know what's going to happen. So think about ahead of time, what if, and you pick what the what ifs are, but have maybe three really great situation, status quo, whatever it is today, and really terrible situation, whatever that would look like um, in your nonprofit. What happens? What what programs do we have to reconsider? What do we have to stop doing? Please, not fundraising. If you stop fundraising, you will Indeed. not raise any money
0: glad you reinforce um, that. thank you.
1: hundred percent certain. I have so much data behind that. Um, um, so you know there might be program closures, there might be uh, limiting uh, services of whatever it is. Um, have a plan ahead of time and get your board involved. They have to be that's what they're there for. They are accountable to the public as trustees for what your organization does and why.
0: Fantastic. Perfect closing statement that covers a lot of important ground as did everything else you shared Melissa for that. I'm grateful um, We will obviously include as much of this as we can in our show notes And would love to share where people can find more about you And I guess you're involved with multiple organizations. So maybe could you tell us where we can go to find out more?
1: Sure. Well, the easiest thing is my own website. So um My family calls me MSB, so my website is msbrownllc.com. We'll put Uh, it
0: in there, perfect. And it
1: has uh, links and it'll show where I'm affiliated and those have hot links if anybody wants to, uh, you know, they'll have hot links to those studies or a presentation I did or whatever that might be helpful.
0: Um, Uh, Indeed, it will be helpful, has been helpful. Melissa, I'm delighted uh, that you could join me and Thank you again for joining oh, I'm so me on the grateful path
1: for the invitation and to, to Joanne beam, uh, uh, for making the referral. It's, it's, wonderful. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Well,
0: thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Melissa as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and enhance your organization's fundraising strategy. Don't forget to check out the show notes. They're on our website, patentmcdowell.com where you can find out more about Melissa, her research, and how you can apply your learnings to both your nonprofit organization and your personal leadership strategies. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with somebody else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can certainly subscribe by going to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features like this one that we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.